Now hear God's holy word from 1 Samuel chapter 26 as we continue our study in this book. Now the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah saying, Is David not hiding in the hill of Hachilah opposite Jeshimon? And Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph, having 3,000 men of Israel with him to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul encamped in the hill of Hachilah, which is opposite Jeshimon, by the road. But David stayed in the wilderness, and he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness. David therefore sent out spies and understood that Saul had indeed come. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the way that you have preserved it. You have delivered this history to us, the history of your people, this history that reveals to us your will and your order and your design. You also show us our Lord and Savior Jesus through your servant, David. We pray that your Holy Spirit would guide us today in the study of this word. We pray that everything that is said and heard and received is pure and holy and right. Deliver us from all error, we pray. We pray you deliver us from all distraction. And may we hear you speak through your word today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. People of God, you know, as you watch your children grow, it's so fascinating to see them develop into their own very unique individual person, how they become their own human being. Uh, You see how much they are like you for good and for bad. There are sometimes you say, well, you're like me. I'm sorry about that, but you're just like me right there. But also all the ways they're different. It's funny. You look at your wife or you look at your husband and say, where did they learn that? Where did they get that? That's not me. That's your people. No, that's your people. No, I'm pretty sure that's your people. Um, the ways they're different, how they, how they cultivate their own personalities, how they cultivate their own passions and interests. What's always surprising to me is when I look at baby pictures and I see on those little faces, those little angelic faces, the very same expressions that I now see on these big faces. These, these tiny, tiny little personalities have kind of stayed with them. And the same little scowl when they were hungry or the same little happy face is still, is still present. It's still, it's still there. The same thing. And, and then the little personality quirks, the, the little habits, the little things that needed correction when they were little, those also grow up with them. Uh, they need help overcoming these things in new ways as they grow. They still need corrected. A, a goofball toddler uh, becomes a goofball 10-year-old, becomes a goofball teenager, and you need uh, to keep that in check, and you need to help them channel that in the right direction. A very passionate, hot-headed toddler needs boundaries, needs corrections and discipline, needs help controlling those emotions. But there's a very good chance that because that's the way they're wired, a hot-headed passionate toddler is going to need some help with their anger when they're a teen and when they're an adult. These things that you correct when they're little sort of grow with them and they sort of stay with them as they grow. You got to keep it in check all the way through. You have to, you have to keep addressing it because if you're permissive with the little tantrums, they become very big violent nightmares later on unless, unless you're helping them keep those in check. The point is little defects, when they're little, become huge personality difficulties, huge personality flaws 
when they're older. It's like if you've ever tried to tune a guitar by ear, the top string or the sixth string, you, you tune it, tune the fifth string off the sixth string. And, and then you kind of do that by ear. And then you tune the fourth off the fifth and the third off the fourth and the second off the third and the first off the second. But if you've made a mistake way up here at the top, it's way out of tune once you get to the bottom. Little mistakes here, little flaws here become big problems later. And they only grow and they only get wider and, and further apart. So you correct things when the stakes are low, when, when there's not much uh, uh, to be lost so that later on you'll have success. Now, that's something I alluded to in the story of David last week. He's, he's showing us some errors now. There are some chinks in the armor. There are some, some small errors now, little defects, bad habits that he's growing in that become much more pronounced and much more destructive later. The last two weeks, we've seen this as a developing theme. He's a man, while faithful, while brave, while humble, he's quick to repent whenever he's corrected, a man who is tempted to reach out and take something that's not his. It started when he reached out and took the corner or the fringe or the tassel of, of Saul's robe. It started there. He reached out and he took something that didn't belong to him. It started out as a kind of a, kind of a big thing, but, but something he could repent of and something he corrected. Later, the next week, we saw him reach out and he he threatened to take the life of Nabal and all of his servants. This is a bigger deal. This is a bigger thing. He's reaching out to take something bigger. Abigail, thankfully, stopped him from doing that, stopped him in his tracks. But then what does he do? He reaches out and he takes Abigail and he takes another woman to be his wife. He's reaching out and taking things that are not his. Kings are not to multiply wives. And then... Um, as, as, as he grows in this, these, these little things, he, he's becoming a man who, who's used to taking whatever he wants. And so many years later, when he sees Bathsheba, he just, he's used to doing this. And so he reaches out and he takes her and he removes her husband from the picture because he's grown. It all starts here. It all starts in these small ways that he's taking things that are not his. There's another problem with David that's becoming evident here as well. And that's his failure to control his house. He fails to control his men, his servants. Instead of setting the tone for them, he allows them to set the tone for him. In the cave episode, when Saul came into the mouth of the cave and he didn't know David and his men were hiding in the back of the cave, it was David's men who were goading him, go kill him, go get him. The Lord has delivered him into your hand. Take him out. And what did David do? He didn't kill Saul, but he had to do something. He had to pull some kind of stunt so that the boys would be satisfied with the action that he took. He, he had to show himself brave. He had to show himself um, at, at least a little bit, um, you know, a, a, as a risk taker. And so in order to impress the boys, he cut the corner off of off of uh, Saul's robe. The next week we saw in the Nabal episode, his men got dismissed and they got disrespected by Nabal. Well, well, David doesn't want to look weak in front of his men. He doesn't want to look powerless. And so he uses bold and crass speech and he gets his hackles up and he talks big about how he's going to wipe out Nabal's house. And he's going to destroy every, every man in the, in the camp. He's, he's tempted, David is, to lurk, look a certain way or to act a certain way to 
to, um, to posture and to present himself a certain way before his men. His men have this expectation of what a warrior king looks like. And David is trying to live up to that image rather than living up to the image of a holy warrior who follows Yahweh first and foremost. And, and again, this is something that's going to plague David as well. His failure to keep his men in line, his desire to please them is later going to come out in all kinds of terrible ways when he is a a passive, uh, pleasing father to his sons and fails to keep his sons in line. And it, it wrecks the kingdom. In fact, both of these failures destroy the kingdom. It tears the kingdom apart when it gets down to Solomon's son. It absolutely rips everything apart. However, the Lord is gracious and the Lord is patient and the Lord is forgiving and kind. And so he's giving David the opportunity to make corrections. He's giving David the opportunity to learn obedience. God is training David. That's why we get another story in chapter 26 that as we go through the story, it's going to feel a little bit like Haven't we read this already? We've seen this before, right? There's so many similarities to chapter 24. Once again, the men of Ziph betray David to Saul and let Saul know about David's whereabouts. Again, these are David's own countrymen. These are men of Judah who've already betrayed David one time and now betray him again. Once again, David is going to have an opportunity to kill Saul, but he refrains from doing that. But he does take something from Saul again. He refuses to run away again. Instead, once again, he calls out Saul with proof that he's been really close to him and he could have killed him. But he didn't kill him. And once again, Saul uh, shows fear and remorse, um, but doesn't really change anything and doesn't change his ways. The story is such a close parallel to the previous story that we read because God is writing history and because God is giving David a do-over. If you've ever had a gracious teacher who's let you retake a test, this is what God is doing with David. David didn't do so well the first time he took the test, so now he gets a second chance to be faithful. In fact, these three stories all kind of hang together in the narrative. Saul in the cave, Nabal, now David sneaking into the camp of Saul. These are three times of testing for David that strengthen him, that sanctify him, that correct him, and prepare him in different ways for taking up the office of king. And so for you, when you wonder, why do I keep having the same thing happen to me over and over? Why, why, why do I always face the same kinds of challenges or the, or the same kinds of people? Well, it could be that the Lord needs to get you to take that test again. <laughs> Maybe you need to do it again. Maybe you need to do it again. It could be that God is training you to get it right. And at least that's what it seems that the Lord is doing with David. Well, as we just read, the, this, this story opens up with the betrayal of the Ziphites. These Ziphites are countrymen of David. They're Judah men. They don't want David to become king, however. They keep, keep giving up David to Saul. They go and tell Saul, David's hiding in the wilderness. We know exactly where he is. Why don't you go in there and get him? And Saul takes three thousand men to go find David. David sends out spies and finds that David is, uh, that, that Saul is closing in around him. He's, he's tightening the net. He's leaving David nowhere to go. Uh, just before this, remember, Saul had given David a break. After the cave incident, 
Saul was quiet. Saul went back home. But remember in the last chapter, David disobeyed God by taking multiple wives. And so in correction and by way of chastisement, God stirs up David's enemies. David disobeyed God. And so God stirs up the Ziphites again. And God stirs up Saul again. When our ways please the Lord, our enemies have peace with us. Why is that? Why do our enemies have peace with us? Because God controls our enemies. The heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord, the proverb says. So God, in, in way of chastising and correcting David, stirs up David's enemies just as he does just as he does with us, and he uses our enemies to correct us and to chastise us. That's what he's doing with David. So verse 5, we'll pick up, and I want to I make a couple of comments about a few verses, and then we'll read a big chunk, but there's, these are packed with detail. Verse 5, so David arose and came to the place where Saul had encamped, and David saw the place where Saul lay, and Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of his army. Now Saul lay within the camp, and the people encamped all around him. We've already met Abner. It's been a while since we've seen him. But right back at the beginning of Saul's story, we met Saul's uncle Abner. And now Abner is the man currently serving as the captain over Saul's army. Who had previously been appointed to that position? Remember, it was David who had been appointed captain of Saul's army. But but Saul ran David off, and now Saul has his uncle as the captain of his guard, his right-hand man, and he also has 3,000 men around him. The arrangement of this camp with the men all around, situated around the outside, and Saul in the middle of the camp is reminiscent of the camp of Israel in the wilderness. We have the tribes camped around the outside, and what do we have in the middle? We have the tabernacle. We have the presence of God. And remember, the tabernacle itself... We've studied this before and we've looked at it many times. The, the tabernacle was like a model of the Garden of Eden. This is the, the tabernacle is the place where we meet with God, the way that Adam and Eve met with God in the garden. Um, they're, they're, the, 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 the tabernacle is, is full of all of uh, re representation of all of creation. There's uh, animal and vegetable and mineral. All of creation is represented in the garden. And, and there's garden imagery throughout the tabernacle. Not only was the tabernacle holy, of course, but the perimeter of the camp was also holy. There were things that you were not supposed to do inside the camp to desecrate the camp. The camp had a holy perimeter. So all of this background is present with Saul in the middle of the camp and the men surrounded, uh, surrounding him around. This is, our minds are supposed to go to temple, holy place, garden. And there's some other illusions here that we'll see. Um, uh, but, but verse six, then David answered and said to Ahimelech, the Hittite, and to Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, brother of Joab, saying, who will go down with me to Saul in the camp? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. David now, understand, is surrounded in the wilderness. The, the, the camp is, is, uh, of Saul is blocking the only exit to the mountains. 
it appears. He has no other choice than to engineer another confrontation with Saul. The difference between this and the cave episode is that Saul just so happened to pop into the cave where David was hiding. Now David is taking up the role as the aggressor. He's going to take the initiative. And this is a good thing. This, this, is, this is not a bad thing for David. He's not laying back. He's, he's sending out spies. He's checking things out. This aggressiveness is a good quality of David. It's what got him the victory over Goliath, many victories over the Philistines. It's going to continue to be a great attribute and a great gift. But David wants somebody to go with him. He needs a witness. He needs somebody to follow him. And so Abishai speaks up. Abishai is David's nephew. Zeruiah is David's sister. And Zeruiah had two sons, Joab, who we meet later, Joab, is a handful that we'll meet and we'll see Joab in 2 Samuel, and Abishai, his, his other nephew by, by his sister. Um, both are sons of, of, of David's sister. So Abishai speaks up and says, yes, David, Uncle David, I will, go, I will go with you. Verse seven. So David and Abishai came to the people by night and there Saul lay sleeping within the camp with his spear stuck in the ground by his head and Abner and the people lay all around him. Imagine David and Abishai are sneaking through a camp of 3,000 fighting men and there's nobody on guard duty. There's nobody awake. There's nobody watching. They're all asleep. They're snoring, but there's nobody paying attention. No one is, is, is on guard. And they make it, David and Abishai make it to the center of the camp. And there is Saul with his famous spear stuck into the ground by his head. The, this spear, which is both the symbol of his rule, he's always seen with the spear in his hand. It's, it's the symbol of his rule, but it's also the symbol of his abusive uh, his, his abusive treatment of David and his abuse of his power against David. As we've been reading this, it's easy to forget all that's transpired between Saul and David. And, and if I were to ask you, what, what generally was Saul's treatment toward David? You would say, well, he got angry a few times and he threatened to kill him. But it's, it's easy to forget the totality of the brutality that Saul has, has engaged against David. I, I want you to remember, um, it's with this very spear that's stuck in the ground by his head that Saul had attempted to kill David on three occasions while David served within his house. Then two times, Saul threatened to kill David indirectly by sending him into the heat of the battle with Philistia. Then uh, Saul ordered Jonathan to kill David. Saul ordered his court to kill David. Saul surrounded David's house to capture him and kill him. He made four attempts to kill David while David was staying with Samuel. He tried to trap him in the city of Keilah. Saul sought to kill him every day in the wilderness of Ziph until, until Saul got called away by another threat. And now he's out for David's head again. That is a long track record of aggressive, hateful behavior toward David, murderous behavior. You may have had somebody in your life kind of be mean to you and you couldn't understand, why, why do they hate me? What have I done to them? Why do they treat me this way? And, and they persist to annoy you or, or offend you or damage your reputation. But, but I don't know any of us who have been pursued 
this long, this far, by someone who actually wanted to kill us. I mean, if, if, if that's been your story, I want to buy you a cup of coffee and I want to hear your story. But outside of that, I don't know that any, anybody has experienced this. Running from somebody who's trying to kill you, a person whom you are trying to honor and respect and serve. How do you sleep at night? This has to be an unbelievable, incredible mental and emotional burden. But we benefit from this because out of, out of this experience comes the Psalms. Out of this experience comes uh, this, this wonderful outpouring of human emotion in the Psalms that now that we can take up and we can say, yes, it's, it's okay to ask these questions. It's okay to pour out our emotions this way. And it's also a picture of Jesus. Jesus was hounded and pursued and opposed by those who wanted to kill him and succeeded in taking his, his life. So you can understand David's nephew when, when they get close to Saul here and, and Abishai pipes up. Verse 8, Abishai said to David, now, now understand what they're doing. They just snuck through. They just tiptoed through 3,000 sleeping, fighting men, big, ugly, hairy ogres of men who can kill you if they want to. They just snuck through. And now there is Saul sleeping on the ground. And verse, verse 7, um, I'm sorry, verse 8, Abishai said to David, God has delivered your enemy into your hand this day. Now, therefore, please let me strike him at once with the spear right to the earth, and I will not have to strike him a second time. David, if you let me at him, I'm not going to need two blows. I'm going to pin him to the earth the first time. And he uses the same kind of language when, when Saul threw the spear at David when he was playing the harp. Saul said, I'm going to pin you to the wall. Well, now Abishai says, I'm going to pin him to the ground with the spear. And it's not going to take two blows. I'm going to get it done the first time. I'm going to get it done right the first time. Well, you can understand uh, Abishai's uh, fire and his desire to get this over with. You, you can understand and appreciate after everything that they've been through. But what is David's response? We'll read a few more verses this time. Verse 9. But David said to Abishai, do not destroy him. For who can stretch out his hand against Yahweh's anointed and be guiltless? David said, furthermore, as Yahweh lives, Yahweh shall strike him, or his day shall come to die, or he shall go out to battle and perish. Yahweh forbid that I should stretch out my hand against Yahweh's anointed. But please take now the spear and the jug of water that are by his head and let us go. So David took the spear and the jug of water by Saul's head and they got away and no man saw or knew it or awoke for they were all asleep because a deep sleep from Yahweh had fallen on them. Well, first of all, we see that David learned something from the Nabal incident. We see that he's growing and he's starting to understand things. David was all fired up and ready to kill Nabal, but he was detoured. He was delivered from that by Abigail. Ten days later, what happened? Well, the Lord took care of Nabal. He struck him dead. He, he took him out. And so David now understands the Lord is more than capable of taking out of this world anybody he wants to take out of this world. We are not the final law court. We're not the final arbiter of justice. 
we, in our best efforts, get things wrong. We misunderstand evidence. We, we, uh, we receive false accusations and take them to be true. We mess things up, but David understands that God is the final judge. God is the final law court, and God is going to take him out if God wants to take him out. I don't need to kill him. I can trust the Lord to handle fools, and I can trust the Lord to handle tyrants if I leave matters in his hands. Now, here once again, though, David is in a holy place, and he's being tempted by his own man to reach out and seize the forbidden fruit, to take the shortcut, to take the life of Saul, just as Jesus was tempted by Satan. And later, Jesus was tempted by Peter. He said, get behind me, Satan. And he was tempted by James and John as well, his companions who completely misunderstood what Jesus was trying to do. Now, Abishai would be in good company with Peter and James and John and Judas because Abishai wants to take the kingdom by force. Later, Abishai's brother Joab, as I already alluded to, Joab's going to be such a handful, he's going to goad David and pressure him. But here, David succeeds. Here, David passes the two tests that I said we're, we're worried about. He doesn't take out and seize the thing that he could take, and he doesn't worry about impressing his man. He doesn't worry about impressing Abishai, but doing what's right. Uh, he passes the test. Um, and he does take something momentarily for a short time. He takes the spear that was by Saul's head and the jug of water that was by his head. Even though Saul is surrounded by 3,000 men, Saul is still sleeping with his spear. But now David takes these and they sneak back out. They were able to get, get these things and, and sneak out these things that unmistakably belong to the king. Everybody knows when they see that spear who it belongs to. That jug, oh yeah, that's, that's Saul's, you know, that's his thermos. We know, you know, you know your coffee cup, right? You know, your, you know your jug of water. You know that's his, and you know that's his spear. And they get out without anybody catching them. Then we find out why they were able to do this. How were they able to sneak in and sneak out without being found? Well, the Lord brought a deep sleep on Saul's camp. This was a miraculous, supernatural sleep. So if David and Abishai wanted to go in there playing accordions and shooting off bottle rockets, they could have walked in there quietly. They didn't have to be so nervous and tiptoe because the Lord had put them into a deep sleep and nobody would have awakened. The construction of this phrase, the, a deep sleep from the Lord, it only comes up a few times in the scriptures. Most notably, where do we see it? See it with Adam in the garden, right? When God built Eve out of his side, he put David into a deep sleep. Now, we've already pointed out the garden, sanctuary, temple, tabernacle imagery here. And now we add to it symbolically, and this would require much more time to unpack. And if you have time this afternoon, you want to get lunch and say, how'd you get there? I'll talk to you about it. But you have a spear in the ground, a wooden spear sticking up out of the ground. You have a jug of water. You've got trees. You've got water. This adds to the sanctuary garden imagery. And so if Saul is asleep like Adam in the garden, uh, under a deep sleep from the Lord, this brings up the question, when he wakes up, who will be his suitable helper? Who will be the true helper of Saul? Is it Abner or is it David? Well, well let's find out. You know, when David woke up from his sleep, he saw who his helper was. Now, when Saul wakes up from this deep sleep in his garden, who is his helper? Verse 13. Now, David went over to the other side and stood on the top of the hill afar off, and a great distance being between them, 
And David called out to the people and to Abner, the son of Ner, saying, Do you not answer, Abner? And Abner answered and said, Who are you? Calling out to the king. So David said to Abner, Are you not a man? And who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not guarded your lord the king? For one of the people came in to destroy your lord the king. This thing that you have done is not good. As Yahweh lives, you deserve to die because you have not guarded your master Yahweh's anointed. And now see where the king's spear is and the jug of water that was by his head. After David and Abishai get out of harm's way, they put some distance between themselves and the camp. David turns around and he calls out to Abner and he mocks him for, for the way that he failed to guard the king. Especially while the king slept, Abner should have been awake or should have made sure that the king was guarded. And Abner should be severely punished for his dereliction of duty. David says you should die for failing to protect the king just now. David says he deserves to die. Abner, Abner, are you awake over there? Is anybody up? Is anybody awake? Hey, look here. Somebody done snuck into your camp and took your coffee mug and your spear. Abner, did any of y'all catch this? Did any of you, did any of you see us? We could have destroyed him and y'all were asleep. And David says somebody came in to destroy you. And that was true. How was that true? Well, Abishai apparently came into the camp with the intention of killing Saul. Abishai wanted to kill Saul. And David asked Abner, all this just happened under your nose. Who was guarding the king? Who was guarding the king? Not Abner. Who was guarding him? David. David saved the king's life. David guarded the life of the anointed. So then, who was the helpmeet? Who was the helper suitable? For Saul, not Abner, David was the helper. Abner was Saul's right-hand man, but he failed to protect. He wasn't, Abner was not an Abigail. At least Abigail came out to stop David. Abner wasn't an Abigail. David, Saul's enemy, loved him more than his right-hand man. David loved him more than his uncle. David was the true friend of Saul in this story. Let's, let's finish the chapter, verse 17. Then Saul knew David's voice and said, Is that your voice, my son David? David said, It is my voice, my lord, O king. And he said, Why does my lord thus pursue his servant? For what have I done or what evil is in my hand? Now therefore, please let my lord the king hear the words of his servant. If Yahweh has stirred you up against me, let him accept an offering. But if it is the children of men, may they be cursed before Yahweh, for they have driven me out this day from sharing in the inheritance of Yahweh, saying, Go, serve other gods. So now do not let my blood fall to the earth before the face of Yahweh, for the king of Israel has come out to seek a flea, as when one hunts a partridge in the mountains. And Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will harm you no more, because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Indeed, I have played the fool and erred exceedingly. And David answered and said, Here is the king's spear. Let one of the young men come over and get it. May Yahweh repay every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For Yahweh delivered you into my hand today, but I would not stretch out my hand against Yahweh's anointed. And indeed, as your life was valued much this day in my eyes, so let my life be valued much in the eyes of Yahweh and let him deliver me out of all tribulation. 
Then Saul said to David, may you be blessed, my son, David. You shall both do great things and also still prevail. So David went on his way and Saul returned to his place. Saul wakes up in the middle of all this ruckus. And then we have the final exchange between Saul and David. Saul calls him son again. David, he says, you're my son. And he's using that same affectionate tone that he took the last time they met. And David is very respectful in return. David says, it is my voice. Oh, my Lord, my king. David is, is very respectful. And then Saul's entry into the conversation gives David the opportunity to plead with Saul over the irrationality of his continued pursuit of David. Why are you chasing me? What guilt have I incurred? What have I done? If I've offended Yahweh, let me know so that I can repent and offer a sacrifice. But, but if it's your own motivation to kill me and treat me this way, I want you to let you, I want to let you know what you're doing, Saul. You are driving me out from the inheritance of my people. You are driving me out from the presence and the communion of Yahweh by treating this by treating me this way, effectively, Saul, you are saying, go serve other gods. That, that's what you're telling me. You're saying, I have no part in Yahweh. You're driving me out of the boundaries of the promised land, forcing me out of the reach of the worship at, at Yahweh's sanctuary, where the presence of Yahweh is known. Now, here's David standing before the chief magistrate of the land for the second time since his exile. And for the second time, Saul admits his guilt. For the second time, Saul is remorseful. And for the second time, he pronounces David innocent. Now, you would think that this would just solve everything. But Saul is a madman. And he can say today, yeah, uh, everything's fine. You haven't done anything wrong. And I'm sorry. Tomorrow, it could be a different story. The next day, he might say again, oh, I forgive you. Everything's fine. We're at peace. And the next, thing, uh, next day, everything would be sideways again. So David can't trust him. There's no way that David is going to go home with him. Saul's saying, come on, my boy. Let's go home and pretend like none of this ever happened. And David says, no, I'm not coming back home with you. We're not going to do that. David does stick his spear in the ground and says, send one of your young men over here to come pick this up. And David goes back to his men. I don't, I don't know if anybody ever came and actually got the spear. We don't, we don't know that. But David says, Yahweh delivered you into my hand today, but I wouldn't reach out my hand against Yahweh's anointed because I valued your life, Saul. I valued your life more than your men valued your life. They wouldn't even stay awake. Saul, I valued your life more than Abner valued your life. He wasn't awake. So as I valued your life, Saul, please value mine and let Yahweh deliver me out of tribulation. Uh, and then David departs after Saul gives him this, this benediction. He says, may you be blessed, my son, David, you will do great things and also prevail. Saul is admitting two things. He's saying, first of all, I'm not going to kill you, David, and you're going to be king. It's, it's like this big admission of failure. Well, let me try to wrap this up with, with, with all this drama and intrigue. We have weapons, and we have armies, and we have espionage, and we have subterfuge. This is all kind of bigger than life, isn't it? It's, it's, it's all kind of this huge epic tale that, that the Lord is giving us here. But at the, at the root of the story is the very same difficult, messy, interpersonal 
relationship messes that you and I have to deal with all the time, right? It's the very same kinds of stuff that we have to deal with. At the root are two men, Israelites, who could not be more alike on the surface. They are, they are so much alike, both leaders, both attractive, both physically and, and, and personally. They're both desirable, both anointed of God. Both had been filled with God's spirit. Both are victorious in battle. And yet one is incapable of repentance. One is absolutely incapable of admitting really, truly when it counts, when he's wrong and responding to correction. He is incapable of anything less than murderous, jealous rage when it comes to the other man. And the man who's the focus of his rage is not an enemy of God. This is all, this is all misdirected. David is not an evil overlord of the Philistines or the Amalekites. If he were, we could understand maybe Saul's rage or, or Saul's maniacal pursuit of David. If David was some kind of wicked, rebellious, idolatrous man. But David is a young man from Judah who serves the Lord and is anointed by God. And Saul still pursues him with this rage and this, this murderous intent. This is all misdirected. It's misfocused. It's ungodly anger. It's ungodly jealousy and wrath toward one of his own men, his son-in-law, his son's best friend, which, as crazy as it sounds, is usually the kind of person we treat the worst. It's, it's usually the kind of person to whom we direct our most hateful, destructive behavior. Not toward God's enemies. Most of us, the, for the, the person we treat the worst is the person closest to us, most like us. So this is the first takeaway. I've got, I've got three very brief takeaways. The first one is this, and that's the destructive nature of misdirected anger toward those who are close to us. We, we're to hate sin. We're to hate idolatry. We're to hate rebellion and unbelief. We're to love our enemies. How do we love our enemies when we don't love the saints? How do we love our enemies when we don't love our brothers? They say familiarity breeds contempt. And we might say proximity breeds frustration and impatience. It's, it's easy to love theoretical people on the other side of the world who never aggravate us. It's very easy to love theoretical people across town or people we only see five minutes a week. It's easy to love those. It's extremely difficult to love real, breathing, messy people. And out of our own frustration, we direct our wrath to those closest to us as if the problem is all with them instead of with our own sins that we haven't worked through, our ingratitude, our failure to exercise patience, our failure to love. And there's also this fact that we always need scapegoats. We, we, we've always got to find somebody. We heap all of our bile and our hatred and our anger on one person. And we do this as a culture, right? We, we get a new scapegoat of the week. Every single week in the news, somebody gets launched up in front of us. And we say, oh, this is the person who's the... The, the, he's the source of all of our problems or she's the source of all the difficulties in our society and culture. So we heap all of our bile and hatred and anger on them. We crucify them or we banish them or we exile them and all of our problems are solved until next week when we have to do it all over again. Our problems are never solved this way 
and we start all over again with a new scapegoat. We do that nationally. We do that as a society. We also do that in families. We do that among friends. We do that in schools and churches. We do that in companies and businesses. We find a scapegoat and we heap all of our problems on the person until they go away, they're crucified and they're banished. And then we think, oh, now we have peace. But we don't have peace. And we have to start all over again. This same pathology is present between David and Saul. And it shows us just how cruel and wicked we are. The ingratitude that we just accept as a way of dealing with other people. The contempt that we harbor in our hearts for our brothers. This is just one little window into human relationships that this narrative gives us. In Adam, we are bad at relationships. In Adam, we are terrible friends. We are bad brothers and sisters. We are mean and we are selfish and we are obnoxious. In Jesus, however, only in Jesus, can we really love anyone else. And so under the leadership and the discipleship of Jesus, we are called to point out those relationships that are bad and to seek forgiveness, to repent, tell the person you hate, you know what, I'm sorry. I've harbored frustration and anger and contempt for you in my heart. And as a person made in the image of God, I'm called to love you. I'm called to love my enemies. Much more, I'm called to love my brother. I'm called to love my sister. So will you forgive me? And then will you pray with me? Because I'm going to keep praying for you. And I'm going to pray on how I can change so that I can love you the way you ought to be loved. You see, you either do that or you're just going to be a Saul. What do you want? Do you you want to do what I just said or do you want to be a Saul? Do you want to crucify your hatred and your contempt or do you want to go to hell? That's, That's it. That's all there is. Uh, there's another little window building on that in a phrase that David uses when he tells Saul, David says, the way you're treating me is driving me out of enjoying my inheritance in the Lord. Your treatment of me, Saul, is like you're saying to me, go serve other gods. Hatred for the brethren is a denial of the gospel. Now we know the inverse of that is true. We know that love for the brethren preaches the gospel. What What did Jesus say? Jesus said, By this, all will know that you're my disciples, if you have love one for another. John says, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. So so we know that love for the brethren is a reflection of and a manifestation of our love for God. Love for the brethren preaches the gospel. But let this soak in. When we are nasty and cruel and abrasive to people whom God loves, we're saying to them, you go serve another God. That's what we're saying. You have no part in my God. I'm in communion with God, we think. John says we're a liar. But we we say, you can't be in communion with me, therefore you can't be in communion with my God. Hatred and ill treatment and cruelty of the people that you are called to love is anti-evangelism. It's the opposite of evangelism. It says, go find Allah or go find Buddha or go take up voodoo or Scientology, but you can't have any part of this. You have no part of the cross. You have no part of Jesus. Now we don't say those words. We don't come out and say that. But David says, Saul, that's what you're doing to me. You're saying, go serve other gods. If you don't love the brethren, 
you don't believe the gospel, you don't love God, and you're an anti-evangelist. And then the last little observation here, just these windows into human nature and human relationships. One last observation is how David is at his best when he ignores the expectations of fools. Young people, children, if you're like four to 21 or 26, if you've tuned me out, tune me back in right now. Just, just tune it back in for just a minute. David is at his best when he ignores the expectations of fools. He's at his worst when he's trying to make himself look good in the eyes of fools. He's at his best when he says, you guys think we should kill Saul or embarrass him or intentionally do something to make him look like a fool, but I'm gonna stand up and tell you to knock it off because that is foolish, it is disobedient to God, and it's disrespectful. That's when David's at his best when he tells fools to shut up and knock it off. David is at his worst when he's preening and posturing and trying to impress the crew. When he's trying to impress the boys is when he's at his absolute worst. Folks, especially young people, people are always foisting their expectations and projecting their expectations on you. Some of those expectations are fine. I expect you to eat with your mouth closed. I expect you to wear modest clothing. I expect you to shower somewhat regularly. Those are okay expectations. Those are fine. But there are some expectations that are born out of ignorance or out of stupidity or satanic impulses. Young person and adults too, if you are going to be impervious to the expectations of fools, you must first have a sense of who you are in Jesus. You have to have enough integrity and courage to ignore the idiotic suggestions of morons and the suggestions of Satan's. You need a personality immune system that wards off stupidity, foolishness, silliness, other people's expectations even from well-meaning people, other people's expectations can be soul-crushing if you're the kind of person who wants to please everybody. Because you know what? Everybody's expectations always contradict with each other. This person really wants to see you do this, but this person really wants to see you do this, and these both may be good things. But if you don't have any personality integrity and know who you are in Jesus and what he's called you to do and how he's called you to live, you are going to be crushed by the weight of expectations. Add to that foolish expectations, and you're going to be a wreck. You develop who you are in Jesus. You grow to please him and understand what he expects and cultivate personal integrity. Let me use a different word for that. Spiritual, capital S, spiritual confidence. Confidence in the Holy Spirit. I know who I am. I know what I am. And I'm prepared to say to fools, I know you have some ideas about what we should do here and what I need to do. I really don't care about those expectations, honestly. You can either keep it to yourself or you can learn to be disappointed, but uh, you'll get over it because I'm not listening and I'm not following. And when David does that, David is at his best. So much about human nature is revealed in this conflict between Saul and David. In the end of it all, Saul is so pitiful. He's surrounded by 3,000 men and not one of them is his helper. 
He's surrounded by 3,000 men and not one of him, one of these guys, not one of them is his true friend. David is the only man who honors his life. And, and Saul despises David. <laughs> Unbelief, rebellion, idolatry put us in the same position as Saul. You can be surrounded by 3,000 people and have zero friends. Except for one, there's always one friend who will fight his way through to find you. He will defeat you and resurrect you and he will save you. He will defeat you in order to deliver you. Kind of the way David did with Saul. Of course, that's Jesus. Embrace the Lord Jesus. Embrace him and the world opens up to you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this uh, uh, story and the continued account of your servant David. We see both in his failures and in his successes uh, information that's, that's good for us, but we pray that we don't just walk out of here and forget it. We pray that you would continue to marinate us in this, continue to cause us to reflect on it and meditate on this and, and apply it throughout our lives. May, may this week we think back to things we've read, not only this week, but previous weeks and say, oh yes, I see that in a new connection and a new way that your word applies to our world. So Father, we ask you by your Holy Spirit to guide us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.